0: Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's com slash Wondery.
1: From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black on Tenterhooks as we begin this episode. Tenterhooks Because the story's getting good, but also because it's pizza night here in the black household. Uh, Friday nights are pizza nights, and it's getting on Friday night. I'm recording on a Friday, and I know I'm going to have pizza. And really, the only question for me, as I look forward to the rest of the evening, is how many slices of pizza am I going to eat, right? Like, what is my MPA for tonight? Maximum pizza allowance. Now... When I'm being semi-responsible, my MPA is four, right? Maximum pizza allowance, four slices. But sometimes I feel a little bad when I eat four slices. Like not, not, not physically bad, but just guilty, like, oh, I ate too many calories. So I've been trying to keep it to three for the past couple of weeks, and it's been difficult. Because I, I leave the dining room table, which in this case is usually the kitchen island, feeling a little morose because I haven't eaten as much pizza as I want to eat. How much pizza do I want to eat? Probably between five and six slices, which seems excessive to me. So I, I generally don't do it. The question is, can I keep it to three? I don't know. What is my MPA for this evening? I don't know. That is, that is the mystery. Additionally, I'm on tenterhooks because the Damon, the big buddy, and Victor Frankenstein have finally come tête-à-tête, Right? Mano Imano, mano. They're up there in the in the Swiss Alps. It's like the scene from like a Mission Impossible movie where the hero and the villain, and it's not clear to me who's who in this case, are face to face at the top of you know a snowy mountain. It's gorgeous scenery, and there's avalanches and there's glaciers, and one of them charges the other, and the other one kind of moves aside and says, "You'll never get me, Ethan," because that's the name of the somehow Ethan is the name of the guy in Mission Impossible, an unlikely name, but that is his name, Ethan uh or in this case Victor Frankenstein you'll never get me or that's not, i don't that's not how the, the big buddy talks i was putting frankenstein's voice in the big buddy's mouth which was inaccurate and i apologize i should not have done that but you know what i'm saying it's like you'll never catch me ethan you know whatever um, but now they've agreed to kind of parlay, right? They're going to talk. They're going to have a little convo, a little, uh, you know, the, because the big buddy's sort of done a ultimatum. He's like, "Look, you hate me. Everybody hates me. I think I'm going to go eat worms. But I'll make a deal with you. Like, if you hear me out, right? I have a proposal. If you if you hear out my proposal, I won't trouble you." or anybody else ever again. I'll just live up here in the Alps and I'll, I'll mind my own P's and Q's. But if you turn me down, you're going to have to kill me because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a reign of blood and terror across this fair land, right? Thousands will die. And so Victor Frankenstein is like, all right, let's, all right, let's, you know what? Let's have a convo. So when we last left them, they were in the big buddy's hut that he made. And he was about to tell Victor Frankenstein, his tale. So I'm excited to hear the tale. Because, you know, up until last episode, we didn't even know the thing could talk. Or, you know, speak intelligibly. Now we know. Also, I've got a piping hot cup of English breakfast tea. I'm all set to go. Chapter three. So this is the big buddy now speaking. Okay? Relating to Frankenstein. It is with considerable difficulty that I remember the original era of my being. All the events of that period appear confused and indistinct. A strange multiplicity of sensations seized me, and I saw, felt, heard, and smelt at the same time. And well, you know what they say about whoever smelt it. And it was, indeed, a long time before I learned to distinguish between the operations of my various senses. By degrees, I remember, a stronger light pressed upon my nerves so that I was obliged to shut my eyes. Darkness then came over me and troubled me. But hardly had I felt this when, by opening my eyes as I now suppose, the light poured in upon me again. I walked, and I believe descended. But I presently found a great alteration in my sensations. Before dark and opaque bodies had surrounded me, impervious to my touch or sight. But I now found that I could wander on at liberty, with no obstacles which I could not either surmount or avoid the light became more and more oppressive to me and the heat wearying me as I walked. I sought a place where I could receive shade. This was the forest near Ingolstadt. And here I lay by the side of a brook, resting from my fatigue until I felt tormented by hunger and thirst. This roused me from my nearly dormant state and I ate some berries, which I found hanging on the trees were lying on the ground. I slaked my thirst at the brook, and then lying down, was overcome by sleep. So he's relaying his first day. He's like, I woke up. I didn't know what was what. I could. I didn't know what was seeing, what was hearing. I didn't know how to feel. Everything, you know, I, I smelled. I smelled things. It was weird. Things were weird. Um, you know, it's interesting to me because the science of this you know, and I've talked before about how this is the first science fiction book. The science of this, to my understanding, does actually comport with the way an infant enters the world. And those of you listening, probably uh, some of you are in the medical field, or maybe you're pediatricians or whatever, or maybe just lay people, and you know more about this than I do, which is surely nothing, despite the fact that I have two children. But my understanding is that infants, when they're first born, actually have similar responses. Like, they, they can't quite differentiate... Their senses, everything is sort of a blur of sensations. You know, they can't, they don't know distance, they don't know what's them and what's something else, and it takes a little while for them to figure this shit out. And Frankenstein, I guess, is going through a similar process, except that, unlike infants, he's pretty much able to walk like a foal after being born. That's what you call a baby horse, right? A foal. So, you know, he gets up, you know, we remember he wandered around Frankenstein's house grunting, you know, the way you do when you first wake up, and stumbled out, went went to the lake, ate some berries, fell asleep. Okay, fine. It was dark when I awoke. I felt cold also, and half frightened, as it were, instinctively finding myself so desolate. Before I had quitted your apartment, on a sensation of cold... I had covered myself with some clothes, but those were insufficient to secure me from the dews of night. I was a poor, hopeless, miserable wretch. I knew and could distinguish nothing. Well, you obviously knew what clothes were for, right? I mean, you know, we take it for granted. You look at clothes and you're like, oh yeah, those are clothes. But if you have just been born and you look, look at clothes, like it might as well be, you know, a jet, a jet engine. You don't know what the fuck it is. But, you know, we'll forgive her that. But feeling pain invade me on all sides, I sat down and wept. Soon a gentle light stole over the heavens and gave me a sensation of pleasure. I started up and beheld a radiant form rise from among the trees. And then there's an asterisk. Interesting. It's not a footnote. It's an an asterisk, and the asterisk, it says, the moon. And then it says, author's footnote. So the radiant form rising from among the trees is the moon, and Mary Shelley felt like it was important for us to understand that it was the moon, so she asterisked it. Okay. I gazed with a kind of wonder. It moved slowly, but it enlightened my path, and I again went out in search of berries. I was still cold when under one of the trees I found a huge cloak with which I covered myself and sat down upon the ground. Well, that's good. You know, it's good when you're out and you're eight feet tall and you're cold and you discover that somebody has left a huge cloak under the trees. Like that's, that's just a good thing to have happen to you when you are a giant monster who doesn't have clothes that fit, right? So I'm going to sip some tea. Mm. Good old English breakfast. So he finds a giant cloak, sits down, and uh, here we go. No distinct ideas occupied my mind. All was confused. I felt light and hunger and thirst and darkness. Innumerable sounds rang in my ears. And on all sides, various scents saluted me. The only object that I could distinguish was the bright moon. Oh, now you know the name, right? You didn't know the name two seconds ago. A radiant form, now you know it's the moon. Why didn't you just say it was the moon last time? And I fixed my eyes on that with pleasure. Several changes of day and night passed, and the orb of night had greatly lessened when I began to distinguish my sensations from each other. I gradually saw plainly the clear stream that supplied me with drink and the trees that shaded me with their foliage. I was delighted when I first discovered that a pleasant sound which often saluted my ears proceeded from the throats of the little winged animals who had often intercepted the light from my eyes. I began also to observe with greater accuracy, the forms that surrounded me, and to perceive the boundaries of the radiant roof of light which canopied me. Sometimes I tried to imitate the pleasant songs of the birds, but was unable. Sometimes I wished to express my sensations in my own mode, but the uncouth and inarticulate sounds which broke from me frightened me into silence again. So he's spending, you know, day after day, he's out there by the brook. He's under, he's, he, you know, he's doing the Helen Keller thing where, you know, Mary Sullivan, you know, says, this is a stone and this is water. And this is, you know, a table. And and he's like, I get it. I get it. Like all these things, like they're all things and I'm a thing too. And I can't sing very well, but you know, the moon had disappeared from the night. And again, with a lessened form showed itself while I still remained in the forest. My sensations had by this time become distinct, and my mind received every day additional ideas. My eyes became accustomed to the light and to perceive objects in their right forms. I distinguished the insect from the herb, and by degrees, one herb from another. I found that the sparrow uttered none but harsh notes, whilst those of the blackbird and thrush were sweet- and enticing. Well, he already knows more about birds than I do. I don't know anything about birds. If you told me the sparrow sang the most beautiful songs in the world, I'd be like, yeah, okay, fine. I don't know. Birds. I don't know. Good job, big buddy. One day, when I was oppressed by cold, I found a fire which had been left by some wandering beggars and was overcome with delight at the warmth I experienced from it. In my joy, I thrust my hand into the live embers, but quickly drew it out again with a cry of pain. How strange, I thought, that the same cause should produce such opposite effects. I examined the materials of the fire, and to my joy, found it to be composed of wood. I quickly collected some branches, but they were wet and would not burn. I was pained at this, and sat still watching the operation of the fire. The wet wood which I had placed near the heat dried and itself became inflamed. I reflected on this, and by touching the various branches, I discovered the cause and busied myself in collecting a great quantity of wood that I might dry it and have a plentiful, plentiful supply of fire. When night came on and brought sleep with it, I was in the greatest fear, lest my fire should be extinguished. I covered it carefully with dry wood and leaves, and placed wet branches upon it. And then, spreading my cloak, I lay on the ground and sunk into sleep. An interesting uh, description there of him discovering fire, because again, you know, Frankenstein is the modern Prometheus, and so now the big buddy... Is in a sense taking on the role of Prometheus himself. He himself is discovering fire. Look, it's somebody, it's somebody else's fire, somebody left it for him, but he's beginning to understand the natural world and as Walton so dedicated, or as Frankenstein so dedicated himself, the natural uh philo- natural philosophy, the, the 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 chemistry and physics and uh thermal dynamics in the constellations rotating against the canopies of the sky. I mean, my God, the education he's getting. My God, big buddy. You're brilliant. You're brilliant, big buddy, I say. Distinguishing the bird songs from one another and discovering which sticks are flammable and which are not. I mean, he's a bright kid, you know? He's got a bright future. Yeah, he's severely disfigured and eight feet tall and doesn't know, you know, his ass from his elbow. But my God, he's learning quick, isn't he? I mean, how do you not admire somebody like this? How do you not? This is a feel-good story to this point. Abandoned in the world, he makes his way on berries and chutzpah. You got a lot of chutzpah, kid. A lot of moxie, big buddy. Let's see how that translates into eating pizza. How many slices of pizza can you eat, kid? So let's take a little break. You know, I'll think about pizza. You think about whatever you're going to think about. We'll leave the big buddy to contemplate nature and the world. And we'll be back in a moment. We're back. You know, I'm really gonna try to keep it to three, but I can't make any promises. You know, you get to a point in your life where you're just like, fuck it, I'm almost 50. Like, can't I just eat a four slice of pizza and I feel bad about it? And the answer is no, you feel worse about it the older you get. Like, at what age are you just like, ah, fuck it. I'm just gonna eat pizza till I drop. 75? 80? You know? Are you are you still lusting after pizza at 75 or 80? I hope so. I really hope so. I really look. Am I going to make it to 75 or 80? Unlikely. Neither of my parents did. Two of my grandparents did, one barely. So, you know, the odds aren't in my favor. So if I'm going to start eating pizza with abandon, I should probably start soon. But let's go back. We're with the big buddy. He's, He's discovered fire. He's all excited. It was morning when I awoke, and my first care was to visit the fire. I uncovered it, and a gentle breeze quickly fanned it into a flame. I observed this also and contrived a fan of branches, which roused the embers when they were nearly extinguished. When night came again, I found, I mean, are we going to go day by day? I mean, you know, is this going to be a whole Dear Diary thing every fucking day of his life? I mean, okay, you know, I get it. He's excited. He's alive. He was born. Like, he's figuring out the world. I get it. But, you know, how about a summary, kid? How about a summary? When night came again, I found with pleasure that the fire gave light as well as heat, and that the discovery of this element was useful to me in my food, for I found some of the offals that the travelers had left had been roasted, and tasted much more savory than the berries I gathered from the trees. I tried, therefore, to dress my food in the same manner, placing it on the live embers. I found that the berries were spoiled by this operation, and the nuts and roots much improved." Food, however, became scarce, and I often spent the whole day searching in vain for a few acorns to assuage the pangs of hunger. When I found this, I resolved to quit the place that I had hitherto inhabited, to seek for one where the few wants I experienced would be more easily satisfied. In this emigration, I exceedingly lamented the loss of the fire which I had obtained through accident and knew not how to reproduce it. Duraflame you know that's what these what these authors always fail to account for Duraflame. you know it, it, they come in their own neat little wrapper you get uh, one of those uh, clicky clicky things, you know so you don't have to worry about you know wet matches and then when you want a fire you just put it down, you get a little air in there boom. Perfect combustion every time, Duraflame, tonight's the night. I was looking at a Duraflame and uh, in fact, their slogan is tonight's the night, which I found laughable, you know, because they're, you know, they're basically saying, hey, Duraflame, let's fuck. You know, that's what they're saying. Tonight's the night, you know? Light this highly flammable, chemically pressed together, contraption together, and you're going to get laid. So he leaves. He's looking for, you know, he's bummed out because he lost fire. He doesn't know how to make it. I gave several hours to the serious consideration of this difficulty, but I was obliged to relinquish all attempts to supply it. And wrapping myself up in my cloak, I struck across the wood towards the setting sun. I passed three days in these rambles, and at length discovered the open country. A great fall of snow had taken place the night before, and the fields were of one uniform white. The appearance was disconsolate. Is that how you pronounce that word? Disconsolate? Disconsolate. You know, it's one of those words you always see in print, you never hear anybody say it. And I found my feet chilled by the cold damp outside that covered the ground. It was about seven in the morning, and I longed to obtain food and shelter. At length, I perceived a small hut on a rising ground, which had doubtless been built for the convenience of some shepherd. This was a new sight to me, and I examined the structure with great curiosity, finding the door. I mean, he'd, he'd wandered through Ingolstadt, right? I mean, he had to get from Ingolstadt to the woods. So he's seen structures before. I mean, he was born in the apartment, but uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll let him, we'll let this one side. He was like, I didn't know what was what I didn't know what my sensations were, you know? Okay, fine. Finding the door open, I entered. An old man sat in it near a fire over which he was preparing his breakfast. He turned on hearing a noise and perceiving me shrieked loudly and quitting the hut ran across the fields with a speed of which his debilitated form hardly appeared capable. His appearance, different from any I had ever before seen, and his flight somewhat surprised me, but I was enchanted by the appearance of the hut. Here the snow and rain could not penetrate, the ground was dry, and it was presented to me then as exquisite and divine a retreat as pandemonium appeared to the daemons of hell. Okay, footnote. The pandem- As pandemonium appeared to the daemons of hell. That's a reference to Milton's Paradise Lost. So I, I assume we're meant to understand that in between uh, waking up and wandering through the fields and getting up into the Alps and meeting Frankenstein, he has read Milton. So, he doesn't know what a hut is, but he read Milton. Okay. Um, a retreat as pandemonium appeared to the demons of hell after their sufferings in the Lake of Fire. I greedily devoured the remnants of the shepherd's breakfast, which consisted of bread, cheese, milk, and wine. The latter, however, I did not like. Then, overcome by fatigue, I lay down among some straw and fell asleep. It was noon when I awoke, and allured by the warmth of the sun, which shone brightly on the white ground, I determined to recommence my travels. Why? You got food there? You got a fire there? You have a roof over your head? What do you, why are you leaving? You know, unless you have some deep sense of individual property rights, which if you do, okay, but it seems like, you know, you'd found you were living by the side of the river, like Chris Farley's character, you know, you had berries, you had fire, and then you were like, I'm hungry, I gotta go. So you find this hut that has wine, cheese, bread, and a fire, and you're like, now I'm gonna leave? Why would you leave? It doesn't make sense. I determined to recommence my travels, and, depositing the remains of the peasant's breakfast in a wallet I found, I proceeded across the fields for several hours, until at sunset I arrived at a village... How miraculous did this appear! The huts, the neater cottages, and stately houses engaged my admiration by turns. The vegetables in the gardens, the milk and cheese that I saw placed at the windows of some of the cottages allured my appetite. One of the best of these I entered, but I had hardly placed my foot within the door before the children shrieked, and one of the women fainted. The whole village was roused, some fled, some attacked me, until grievously bruised by stones and many other kinds of missile weapons, I escaped to the open country and fearfully took refuge in a low hovel, quite bare, and making a wretched appearance after the palaces I had beheld in the village." This hovel, however, joined a cottage of a neat and pleasant appearance, but after my late dearly bought experience, I dared not enter it. My place of refuge was constructed of wood, but so low that I could with difficulty sit upright in it. No wood, however, was placed on the earth which formed the floor, but it was dry, and although the wind entered it by innumerable chinks, I found it an agreeable asylum. From the snow and rain. And we'll end there as we hear the lament of the big buddy. I mean, it's a blues song. Uh, I was born in Ingolstadt. I was born in Ingolstadt. I ate berries for my breakfast. Then I almost got shot. Um, so the big buddy's making his way in the world. You know, he's figuring out all the things. You know, the animals and the, and the birds in the sky and the different plants. And it's it's an exciting time. You know, it's like it's a kind of puberty for him. You know, but a very it's a very quick childhood leading into adolescence, and he's discovering what horror is, but not understanding yet that he is the cause of the horror, which is nice, you know? The longer you can delay the realization that you are the cause of horror, the better off you are, you know? Ignorance in this case really is bliss. What's weird to me is that nobody in the town thought to tell anybody else in any other towns that there was a big buddy menacing around the village, You know, he couldn't have gone very far. Seems like word of this would have spread at least as far as Ingolstadt, and Frankenstein would have heard about it. And Frankenstein, you know, might have said, he raised his hand and said, "Uh, I know what that is. Uh, If you, uh, I know, I know what's troubling you villagers. Uh, If you would, uh, (laughs) you know, he might have taken a little blame for that. But Frankenstein being Frankenstein, he didn't hear, he didn't know, I was just following orders, you know, the whole thing. He, he's in denial. Everybody's in denial. Or maybe the villagers all thought, you know, nobody would believe him, they were crazy, it's like a UFO report. You know, there were UFOs over phoenix, there's video of it, you know, and everybody's like, yeah, it's UFOs, but I'm not sure. You know, I mean? So it's probably something, something like that, you know, where there's always tales of dragons and monsters and this and that out there and people just kind of poo-poo it, but this time, you know, the phantasm was real. So I don't know, you know, we're, 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 he's telling his tale. It's almost like, it's almost like a little, uh, it's like a, it's like a little mini autobiography. There's action upon action upon action. It's not particularly reflective, which I like, you know, um, but it does continue to support the idea that is present in this book, that nature reflects kind of what's going on in the world because there's rain and snow and he is being tormented by the elements and by everything else, his environment the villagers himself he's trying to figure shit out so i'm going to have some pizza i don't know what you're going to do you know these these episodes come out on fridays so if you're listening the day it comes out it is pizza night for you as well so i would encourage you to determine your own mpa and to exceed it okay do what i cannot which is indulge you know i have a figure to maintain which is let's be honest not being very well maintained these days. You do not. You do not have a figure because I can't see you. You are formless. You are just in the void. So you can be formless. And for my sake, just eat as much pizza as you care to eat. So until then, we'll have some pizza. And I'll see you again on another sated episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein, was produced by myself, Michael Ian Black, Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, and Mary Shimkin. It was recorded in the wilds of Connecticut at the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. Theme music by Craig Wedren. If you would like to support this podcast, please join us at patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. This is a podcast that does not receive any outside funding other than the funding that you yourself give it. So if you would like to support it, please do patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black.